Welcome to the Christ Institute's seminar series, The Four Horsemen of the Woke Apocalypse. I'm Pastor Levi Secord of Christ Bible Church, and I thank you for listening. In today's seminar, I examine that first horseman, secularism. Why do so many of us, Christians included, live fragmented lives? Why do we sometimes operate as functional atheists? It is because we have bought into the lie that is the secular sacred divide. I encourage you to listen carefully today as we unpack what that means, and more importantly, how Christians can respond to this divide. All right, so our first horse here of the woke apocalypse is is secularism, and I've titled it No God Here. And this horse really doesn't necessarily come out when you're dealing with somebody who's woke, but it's really the underlying foundation of it all. This idea that there is parts of life where God does not exist. According to Charles Taylor, who wrote a very large book on secularism, uh, he, he lays out three different ways we use the term secular. So when we're talking about secularism, what do we mean? One way we use it is to refer to that there are secular spaces in life and there are sacred spaces. I think this is the, the primary way we use it today. The church, for example, is a sacred space. Uh, the state is often viewed as a secular space. No God here. No God allowed here. That's one way we use the term. Uh, Another way we use the term is the decline of religious belief and practice. That in general, we talk about America secularizing and Western Europe secularizing. It's this belief that most people are, or it's this reality that a lot of people are moving away from the Christian faith. They're secularizing. There's a decline in religious belief and practice. I mean, some surveys will tell you that uh, most countries in Europe have about 2% of the population as evangelical Christians. 2%. That means they're just as unreached as some of the traditional places you would think of that we send missionaries to. 2%. The place that used to be the bastion of Christian faith is secularized thoroughly. Or third, that belief in God is one option among many, and it is often viewed as not the best. So if you were to talk to somebody in your life and say, hey, I'm a Christian, you'll, uh, you'll get a response something like this, I'm glad that works for you. Right? you. You pick the faith that works for you, and Christianity may work for you, but it doesn't work for me, and uh, we just all, uh, all get along. And uh, what this is, has led us uh, to believe is what J.K. Smith gets at here. He says, so the shift to a secular age not only makes exclusive humanism a live option for us, by, that he, by humanism he means living without God in view, it also changes religious communities. I want you to focus on this next statement here. We are all secular now. We now inhabit this self-sufficient, imminent order, even if we believe in transcendence. So what Smith is, is commenting on here, he's, he's commenting on Taylor's work, is this reality that even if you're a Christian, Even if you believe in God and practice that on Sundays and and Wednesday nights, chances are you are still secular in your worldview, in your outlook, in in how you live your life. And because you function in such a way as that you view yourself in life as self-sufficient within the imminent or the immediate order. There's nothing outside. When we we think about um, growing a garden in the backyard, we have come to think of it in purely secular terms. Plant, I water it enough, and it grows. We don't think about God giving the growth. We think about it in Darwinistic scientific terms only. There's no deeper meaning to that plant. It's just 
we grow and this works this way and this works that way and God maybe gets added on, tacked on. But even if you believe in a transcendent God, you tend to live as if in your day-to-day life that God doesn't exist. And this is a, a real problem and it has a, a direct impact on Christianity today because we're going to ask a question in the next slide that's, that's very important. But when you look out at the Christian landscape, those of us who believe in a transcendent God, those of us who believe that there is meaning in life, we have these movements within the church that fit very nicely within secularism. And so we have debates going on today um, around concepts like Christian nationalism. What does it mean? What's the term? Whatever. But you have people within the Christian church who affirm things like the Westminster Confession of Faith, who then, how they teach, and they even teach at these seminaries, who actually deny the Westminster Confession of Faith in their, in their practice with this radical two kingdoms theology, that there are two kingdoms in this world, and there's the kingdom of, of Satan, and there's the kingdom of God, and there's, there's no overlap whatsoever. The two kingdoms are to be meant separate. The state is completely within the kingdom of Satan, and so the church has, has nothing to say to that. That fits very nicely in, in a secular worldview. You have a, a less extreme version of that of pietism, that the main goal of Christianity and almost the exclusive goal is personal piety, personal holiness. Now certainly Christianity is not less than that and should never be viewed as less than that, but is it more? I'm going to argue today that it, it is. And then because of these things, especially when, when you think of the radical two kingdoms, if, if your Sunday life is kept separate from your political life, and the Bible doesn't inform you over here, well, you're free to go become a crazy leftist. And I don't use that word flippantly. I I mean it. Like, leftism is insane. Like, we're we're at a point now where if you can't admit that it's insane, you're, you're going insane too. Does that mean everyone who's on the left is insane? No. But the logical consequences of their view are utterly absurd. And and we've been going that way uh, for a while. And so when we define what is secularism, I'm going to offer you kind of two things here from Mary Poplin and then the second one's from uh, Nancy Piercy. When I'm talking about secularism today, I'm talking about the doctrine that rejects all religious principles in civic life, public life. Or as Nancy Piercy describes it, secularism introduces a dichotomy or a split, a separation into your life. That there are secular parts of life and there are sacred parts of life. So Parts where God's not allowed, secular, and parts where he is allowed, sacred. And that also introduces the split of, or split of fact and value in public and private. Many a pastor laments, why is it that we have this gap between Sunday morning and the rest of the week? Why, why do my people not seem to live like Christians for the rest of the week? Sometimes I want to kindly say to them, because you preach to them that way. Like you've subtly reinforced this way of thinking about uh, the Christian faith. And so, unless you attack that split, the split will remain. No matter how much you tell them you need to read your Bible and you need to pray more, which they need to do. But if they think that, that only has to do with this part of their life on Sunday mornings and maybe their family life, and that's it. Well, they spend the most of their hours the rest of the week in what we would call, or what modern people would call, the secular areas of life. And you've trained them to think Christianity has nothing to say there. And so, it's not important. And so the question we have to ask here is, how did we, how did we get to this point? And really, that's the uh, question that Charles Taylor wrestles with in his massive book, uh, A Secular Age. He asks this, Why was it virtually impossible to not believe in God 
in, say, 1500 in our Western society, while in 2000, many of, us find, uh, many of us find this not only easy, but even inescapable. Right. So, so think about that. Right. We could probably even go 1700, founding of our nation. Why was it um, virtually impossible to not believe in God then, 250 years later or so? Now we find it, it's actually really easy and preferable to not believe in God, or at least act like we don't believe in God. And so one of the things you do when you study history and you study the history of thought, you realize that people from prior ages, even if they share the same skin tone as you, thought very differently than we do today. Why? What, what has happened that we have gone from a point in the West where Jesus, or God was the assumed reality to now we have to feel like we have to prove that he exists? That's a massive, massive shift. And that's going to, how we answer that question is going to impact a lot here. So, my objectives for this morning is to learn secularism's origin and its historical context, and then we're going to comprehend the modern version of it today. What is it like living in secularism today? And then I want to uh, understand the biblical response. And after that, we're going to have some times for, for questions, answers, and uh, in discussion. If you have a question in the middle, too, just raise your hand as well. So, first here, we're going to do a very, very, very quick history of um, our survey of history okay where do we find it's easiest to to think about secularism today i think in in the separation between how we think about the state and the church that's where it's most clearly seen all right so where do we find this split between religion and and government very quick survey in history ancient egypt ancient egypt did they have one of the first major civilizations, did they, did they think in categories like we do today, that the church and the state should remain separate? Well, here's a quote from the University College of London. The king is by nature divine. He is Horus, the offspring of Ra. Ra is the sun god. However, he is also inhabiting a human body and is therefore mortal. This is the duality of divine character and mortal constraints is the essence of Egyptian kingship. So, did Egypt think in, in secular terms? No. All right. In order to rule as the Pharaoh, you had to be considered God. Right? There, there's, there's a marriage there. So it wasn't, wasn't them. How about Babylon? King Nebuchadnezzar, what did he tell everyone to do? Bow down, worship me like a god. So ancient Babylon, nope, not them. How about ancient Persia? King Xerxes also claimed some form of divinity. And his mission in the spread of, of his conquering of the world was to establish his religion, Zoroastrianism, Zoroastrianism, at the expense of all other religions. So as they went out and the Persians went out and conquered the world, it was explicitly religious. This is why they did it. But even that is somewhat off as I talk about it. I'm talking about it in our terms. Ancient Rome. The pantheon of gods were believed to have established and blessed the Roman Empire. Right, if we kept these, these Roman gods happy, our empire would grow. It even goes a step further than that. Uh, the Roman emperors took the titles of Lord, Savior, and Son of God. So in the New Testament, and Jesus is saying, I'm Lord and Savior and I'm the Son of God, he's setting himself in direct opposition to Caesar. Right, it's a very political message. That's why the Jews brought him at first to Pilate and said, you need to kill this guy because what he's doing is political. The emperors also demanded worship the emperor cult, um, offering sacrifice to, to the emperor because he was divine. So ancient Rome didn't think in secular terms like we think today. 
Right, so that's much closer to our line here. Let's step out of the West for a second. The Chinese dynasties, what, maybe they thought this way. Well, no, the Chinese emperors were also were considered divine, and they ruled under a mandate from heaven. You could go also to the uh, Aztecs here in Mesoamerica. They would offer sacrifices, cutting out the still beating hearts of people to appease their gods to keep their civilization running. Right. There's, there's no secular sacred divide uh, you're going to find in ancient and paganism. You get to medieval Europe. All right, so after the fall of the Roman Empire, you have the establishment of the Holy Roman Empire, where you have some aspect of the church ruling over the state. Like literally what you have here in this picture is the Pope crowning Charlemagne the emperor. This is huge because the church in some ways is claiming authority over the state. The church is saying, I have the authority to make you king. All right, so there's, there's a marriage there uh, between the church and the state in the Middle Ages. And if you're going to ask me, Levi, do you, do you agree with that type of setup? No, I don't. Right? But, there's, but there's, still, there's still a marriage there between the church and the state. Well, you get to the Reformation era. Right? So you've got uh, King Henry here of England. There's a marriage, and depending on where you go, whether you're going to John Calvin's Geneva or England, with the king being the head of both the state and the church, even today, King Charles is the head of the Catholic, or not the Catholic Church, the Anglican Church and the state. There's, there's still, even though it's not really practiced anymore, a marriage between the church and the state and England, but some distinction there. So, where do we get the origin? Like, where does this come from? Like, America largely came from Britain. Right, so where, where do we get this idea of secularism? Most of world history, as you can see, didn't think at all uh, in these categories. Even the idea of religion as a distinct part of life is rather a recent idea in history. So when I was reading uh, Tom Holland's um, Dominion book, he talks about how Britain was ruling over India. In India, they had this practice that when the man died, the widow, she would go and kill herself and be buried with him. And the Brits, as Christians, were very disturbed by this. All right? and, and they were ruling over India, and they are like, we have to bring a stop to this. And so they were trying to figure out whether or not this was a religious practice or not. But the Indians, the Hindus, didn't think in that categories. Like, what do you mean religious? Like, religion, as we think about it, was so interwoven into their life, they didn't think in that category. That's just a part of life. It's not a separate part of life. It's, it's integral uh, to life. But eventually the Brits were able to convince them, yeah, don't do that. that that's, that's not okay. So there's some bad fruit of colonialism. They stopped women from being killed because their husbands died. Uh, this, um, so the first real prominent example we have in, in Western history of an attempt at a secular state is the French Revolution. So if you studied history at all, and the French Revolution comes shortly thereafter, the American Revolution, and they, they were really rebelling against real abuses of the Catholic Church uh, in France, like things that I would agree with them. That's wrong. They shouldn't have been doing that. And what they set up instead of the Catholic Church was what they called the, the Church of Reason, the Church of Human Reason. And this was going to be the foundation for, for human rights. And if you know anything about the French Revolution, it didn't end very well. And it didn't last uh, very long. It, it devolved very quickly into the reign of terror and decapitating people with the guillotine. And then Napoleon comes in and sets himself up as emperor. So not, not a very good thing. The next real examples we have of trying a pure secularist state is the fascism in Europe 
and the Marxism, both of them building off of the theory of, of Charles Darwin and trying to get rid of the Christian undergirdings of state politics in, in the West. And what we've had really for about the last 200 years is Western states have been secularizing. So, where, so this origin, where does, it, where does it come from? Do you have any questions? You're going to be drinking from a fire hose all morning. So that's a very brief and admittedly simplistic telling of, of history. Any questions on that? You tracking with me? You need another cup of coffee? All right. So where does it come from? Well, this is where I'm going to, I'm going to make my case here that I think secularism is a Christian heresy. What do I mean by that? Like, secularism picks up on something that I think is really there in the Christian faith. You can find it in Matthew 22, where Jesus talks about give to Caesar what is Caesar's, uh, and give to God what is God's. That there is some distinction between the church and the state. But what secularism has become is a bastardizing of that doctrine, and a going too far. Like, it assumes certain Christian things to get off the ground, and then it has cannibalized uh, Christianity. So without Christianity, it doesn't make sense, and then it uh, turns itself on Christianity. So we're going to take a step back here. We're going to go to medieval Europe. We want to think a little bit here about what spirituality was like under the Roman Catholic Church. All right, so I'm going to throw a lot of terms at you. Don't, don't, don't despair, okay? Medieval spirituality was semi-Gnostic, based off of the thought of Plato, Neoplatonic thought. What does that mean? Basically, the physical is bad and the spiritual is good. Or the physical is bad and the non-physical is what is good. And so this set up some some dichotomies or dualisms in the patterns of life in the Middle Ages. You have things like the holy orders of the Roman Catholic Church. So you can be a monk, you can be a nun, you can be a bishop, you can be a priest. And then you're serving God. And then you have the laity, that's the commoner. They're not serving God. Right? So these guys here in the holy orders are focused on the spiritual things, which are good. The rest of you who have to eke out a living by farming and whatnot, you're focused on the physical. It's, it's either bad or it's, it's less than good. It's not ideal. You kind of have to do it. And so this led to a lot of things, even um, before the medieval age in, in Christianity, of monasticism. What is that? That's the idea that, that monks and, and people would build a monastic retreat where they could leave the world. Like we could go live in our tower by ourselves and we'd be free from the, the sinful, physical things of the world and we could just pray all day. And that would make everything better. And if you read, read the monks at all, or even people like Augustine who uh, tried to do this, they said the problem is, is the, the dancing girl, the naked dancing girls of the cities followed me there. They didn't actually go with him, but they were stuck in his mind. He couldn't, he couldn't, you can't just run away from the world, build some walls, and, and think everything's uh, going to get better. Uh, this gets to really strange practices like medieval monks to try to mortify or kill their, their fleshly desires would run naked through thorn bushes. I don't recommend it. Don't do it. But it's, it's based on this dualistic pattern of, of living and this asceticism, which is physical denial. Like true Christianity is found in never having any fun physically. Like we just have to deny it. It's actually very Buddhist way of looking at life, not, not Christian at all. And so only truly spiritual things matter. And, um, and then we have this problem that spiritual and physical truths then, you have this separation of, of day-to-day life 
where physical and spiritual things are often found in, in conflict with, with one another. And so I'm, bar- I'm borrowing this chart here from Francis Schaeffer, and I'll be kind of reworking it from time to time. And what this does is it sets up a hierarchy in life where you have upper story realities and lower story realities. We live in the lower story realities, the matter, the things that are physical. We live in those things, but the things that really matter, based on uh, Plato, are the form or the ideal, the, the non-physical, or in the Christianized way, the spiritual. The spiritual. Now, I want to say something very clearly here. Spiritual in the New Testament does not mean non-physical. Like, we've been trained to think that anytime we word, read the word spiritual, it means non-physical. Sometimes it does mean that, but not all the time. Mostly what spiritual means in the New Testament is of the Holy Spirit. So when you're called to offer your life as a living sacrifice, your spiritual act of worship, like your life is physical. What does it mean to be a spiritual act of worship? It's of the Spirit. All right? To be spiritual is to be of the Spirit. So this, this dichotomy here separates life into form, an ideal, non-physical, versus real life, matter, and physical. One is more important than the other. G.K. Chesterton, who's always known for a clever quote, he said this about this way of life. He said, there are two truths, the truth of the supernatural world and the truth of the natural world, which contradicts the supernatural world. While we are being naturalists, we can suppose that Christianity is all nonsense, but then when we remember that we are Christians, we must admit that Christianity is true, even if it is nonsense. Now, if you don't know G.K. Chesterton, he's actually not being serious here. Right? It's his tongue-in-cheek. He's, he's pointing out how stupid this type, this type of thinking is, and he was Catholic, so... Take it as you will. All right, so then as we get to the end of the Middle Ages, you have this very important thinker come along named Thomas Aquinas. He's quite literally one of the most influential thinkers in Western society. He's still shaping us to this day. He was a Catholic, um, Catholic theologian. And uh, contrary to the Neoplatonism, he, he sought to recover and Christianize the thought of Aristotle. So at this time, as the Renaissance is kicking off and, and some of these other things, there's this, this, this re-influx of Greek thought in, into Europe. And instead of having material, immaterial, uh, he introduces what is called a nature-grace duality. And so where this differs from Plato, and uh, much of that before, is he actually affirms that nature is good. Right? Nature isn't the problem. And he's right on that. But he also has nature as being largely independent. And so what he ends up doing is reinforcing this this division in life. So when I was getting my notes together this morning, I had to quick switch uh, to a white background because this projector was not showing my notes. And I lost the name of this Catholic philosopher, but he's a Catholic philosopher. Okay, this is what he said. Man, such as medieval Christendom conceived him, had been split in two. On the one hand... Um, has a man of pure nature who is need only of reason to be perfect, wise, and good and to gain the earth. And so what, 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 our, um, what uh, Aquinas is doing here is he's got that same dualism going on, but now nature is independent. It can operate fully on its own. Nancy Piercy picks this up. She says, This two-tiered schema of nature and grace proved unstable. And after Aquinas, the two orders of existence had a tendency to separate and grow increasingly independent. Why? Because there was no real interaction or interdependence between them. 
nature remained complete and sufficient in itself with grace merely as an external add-on. You understand what she's saying here? I mean, this is really what we're, we're living in today. Right, that there are two parts of life. There's nature and there's grace. And the two parts of life have distinct goals and methods. Right? So life is fundamentally divided. Here as nature and grace, and we would say today secular and sacred. And we see those attitudes very, very, very prevalent in evangelicalism. So, so here, here's Aquinas' view of life. Grace is the upper story, that which is really important. That includes God, heaven, the unseen, spiritual, uh, things like soul in the church. The church operates in the realm of grace. Uh, things like the state or the government operate in the realm of nature, the created order, earth, visible, uh, that which is physical and science. These things are now not viewed as bad, but they're also now fully independent from grace. Grace can complement it, grace can complete it, but grace isn't really needed to understand that which is nature. You guys all want to go to sleep now? Is it making sense? This is, this is Aquinas's dualism. And to that, there comes two responses. All right, so Aquinas says life is nature and grace. They're independent of one another, running on parallel tracks, as it were. This kept the division in life, but there are two, two responses to Aquinas's thought. The Reformation and the Enlightenment. So the Reformation comes in and largely tries to reject his uh, nature-grace split with people like Martin Luther and John Calvin. Now, they never did this perfectly. They had, they had uh, ingested a lot of it, but they were trying to, trying to separate themselves from the Catholic Church. This is what Piercy says. One of the driving motives of the Reformers was to overcome this medieval dualism and to recover the unity of life and knowledge under the authority of God's Word. Like This last part. What, what is the Re- Reformation trying to do? Recover unity of life and knowledge under the authority of God's Word. So this is what the Reformation aimed at. Your Presbyterians, uh, your Lutherans, and whatnot. There was, for them, no two-tiered spirituality of Christians. Like, this is one of the things that Luther was, was really driven, driven mad about, is that the monks were so separated uh, from life and that the laity, the commoner, was looked down upon as a less-than-Christian. And so this is what introduces, or the Reformers really stood on this, is the idea that all believers are priests. The priesthood of all believers. Like, no, no more are we going to have this hierarchy of, you guys are all about grace and we are all about nature. No, every Christian is a priest. Every Christian has access to God. You don't need to go through a Catholic priest. Like, you don't need to go through your pastor to confess your sins. You don't need to go through your pastor to receive forgiveness. You have the same access to God that I have. And in that, we are equal. And so this leads to um, the expansion of of vocations. Before the uh, Protestant Reformation, the idea of a vocation, and the word there literally means a calling, was almost exclusively used for the ministry. To have a vocation, to have a calling, was to be called to the ministry. We now have offices in our universities that are offices of vocation because the Protestant Reformation changed fundamentally how we thought about these things. That you can be a carpenter, you can be a teacher, you can be a salesman, and that can be your vocation. 
your calling from God. There's no, there's no hierarchy of serving God by being a pastor or by being anything else, as long as that uh, career isn't inherently sinful. And so the monastic retreat of that, if we want to serve God, we have to, all we have to do is like pray and practice meditation and live in a monastery, was replaced with the cultural mandate. The cultural mandate is when God says, go have dominion over creation. The Reformation was all about this idea, go spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so Calvin can say things like, the universe is the theater of God's glory. Every aspect of the universe is displaying to us the glory of God. The physical is not bad. It is not less than, but we see the good through what God has created. And this leads to the birth of what was called for quite some time uh, the Protestant work ethic. The Protestant Reformation returned dignity to work outside the church. That yes, even if you sell cars, you are serving God. This was revolutionary and changed the world uh, for the better. That is how uh, the Reformation responded. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Um, as I said at the beginning, the reformers definitely didn't do this perfect. And yeah, Luther definitely fell into... This. Luther... The two kingdoms means there's the kingdom of the world and there's the kingdom of God. And there's some teaching of that in the Bible, but what, is, what does that mean in the Bible? It does not mean that the kingdom of this world is what we think of as world as in physical, and that the kingdom is spiritual. The dichotomy in Scripture is between sin and righteousness. Right? It's not between physical and non-physical. This is why God the Son was incarnated. He became physical. Because physical is not bad. Physical is not the problem. This is why he bodily rose from the dead. Why he will bodily return and remake the physical cosmos. And so Luther, of all the reformers, in my opinion, remained the most Catholic. Like he didn't put off all of it. He should have put off a lot more than he did. We're very grateful for what he did do. Like he took a major step for us, but he... He didn't put it off as much as he should have. And that's found in his view of communion, consubstantiation. This doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Bob, yeah. Yeah, the city of God. Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, so I'll be honest, I've never, I've never read City of God. I've heard completely different takes on it. Piercy, for example, thinks people misunderstand him, that he's not teaching a fundamental dualism. I, I can't comment on it because I've never read it uh, in depth, but certainly he was interpreted, interpreted by some as creating that dualism through that book. So I think, I think Augustine in a lot, got a lot of things right, like the Reformers and the, the Catholic Church fought over Augustine, but there are certainly things that Augustine was much closer to the Catholic Church than he was to the Reformation. And so he's like a lot of guys. He had some good things. He had some flawed things. All right, so Piercy says uh, this about Calvin. Calvin taught that the individual believer has a vocation to serve God in this world in every sphere of human existence, lending a new dignity and meaning to ordinary work. I think we've, we've lost uh, sight of that. We often think that if you have to serve God, you have to become a pastor or a missionary. No, that's very Catholic thinking. Uh, when evangelicals fall into the secular sacred divide or division, 
and, or they fall into pietism or the spiritual physical divide, they are, in essence, rejecting the Reformation and returning to a blending of Greek and Catholic thought. Right. Let that sit in. There are people running around out there who say, hey, I'm a Calvinist, I'm a Calvinist, but they only mean that for the doctrines of grace. They've rejected Calvin on it, just about everything else. And they're, they're leaning into uh, Catholic thought by dividing life up into these, these different spheres. Uh, so the Reformation, no dualism, no separation, for example, of faith and reason, and that is undergirded by this, under, this statement that we believe in order to understand. Right? Right? We, we start at a spot where we have a faith so that we can reason. Like you really can't start with a blank slate uh, in God's world. So faith is needed in order for us to understand. You say, Levi, how does that make any sense? Well, we've gotten to this point in postmodern relativism where people are telling you that math is racist. Reason needs a foundation to function. Human reason can't function on its own. Because if we trace the, the, the history of Western thought, and if you, you figure out what they're arguing, that's basically where they've gotten to at this point, where we can't know that anything is true whatsoever. So we've killed human reason. Why have we done that? Because it requires a faith to start with. A faith bigger than believe in yourself. Now the second response uh, to to uh, the Catholic rule over life was the Enlightenment or the Age of Reason. Okay, and they really, they really take some of Aquinas' stuff and uh, reject other parts of it. But the Enlightenment um, recognizes that nature, the nature-grace split has actually set nature free to function on itself. And so what a lot of people start to do is this first turn to the self that if if this realm of life known as reason or nature is, is wholly sufficient in itself, right, then we don't need God to have human reason. Right? We can figure it out on our own. And so in the Enlightenment, what becomes the standard for truth is human reason and the scientific method. These are now the things that measure what is true and what isn't. And if you've been paying attention for the last three years, uh, science... Eh, it often contradicts itself, and scientists themselves are often not that trustworthy. They all have agendas they're trying to spin. And so what the problem with the Enlightenment gets is that when we get to the near the end of the Enlightenment, which, I mean, we're still impacted by this today, but we, would often call, we also would call the Enlightenment modernism. That ends in about 1950, 1960, with the rise of postmodernism and the sexual revolution in the West. But what you get at the end, towards the end of this, is that no one could actually agree with one another as to what's reasonable. Nature is perfect, and reason, and we can all just reason and ration with, uh, practice this rationality with one another and reach truth without the help of God, then eventually you think we would agree with one another, but we don't. And so you have uh, people like, like Frederick Nietzsche coming in and, and David Hume coming in and, and uh, to undermining the Enlightenment thoroughly by saying, guys, don't have a foundation for this at all. None of this makes any sense. So Frederick Nietzsche is famous for saying God is dead. And his uh, analogy of the madman, I think, is actually really, really helpful for Christians. Because what, he, what he's doing is he's going around, as this, this parable he's telling, of this madman's going around the town to the baker and, and all these other people in the town square and saying, we've killed God. Stop living like God exists. So he's not saying we actually killed God. He's saying that we've killed him as a, as a need for being able to understand the, the world. And if God doesn't exist, his whole point is there is no right and wrong. 
So stop pretending like there's morality. Stop pretending like these things matter at all. They don't. There's no meaning. There's no morality. So we should all just be madmen. And he died a madman. And he was right. Like, if there is no God, none of these things exist. You can pretend like morality exists, but it, it, it doesn't. And then you have it also in the Enlightenment through people like Rousseau, religion has started to be viewed as oppressive. Like, religion is, is holding us down. When religion gets out of that grace framework and starts to impose on nature, it becomes an oppressive force that we need to get rid of. And so, therefore, government should be free from religion. And that's where we get these, these two contrasting revolutions at about the same time of human history. I talked about this once already. But you have the American Revolution, which contrary to what historic historians are telling you today, was born out of a uniquely Christian worldview, and not just a uniquely Christian worldview, but a Presbyterian and Calvinistic worldview. So what drove the Founding Fathers to act the way they did? Because they were assuming a worldview of Christianity and a God above, a creator who endows uh, every person with equality and human rights. And so the American Revolution assumes this Christianity and is, by a large, uh, large agreement here, except for modern people, successful. It secured liberties. Right? Where, did they do this perfectly? No, they didn't. Right? They inherited a world worth slavery, and it took them a while to figure it out. But they were also the only country to ever send its own people to die to fight to free slaves. Right? And then you have this other revolution going on uh, shortly thereafter, the French Revolution. Rejects God completely, human reason, and within a couple years it descends into utter chaos and tyranny. I don't think you can miss how much of a story God is telling in history right there. One says we're going to embrace God, ends with liberty. The other says we're not going to, and we're going to be free, and ends in tyranny. History has a lot uh, to tell us. And so the Enlightenment gets to this point of where we have the rise of the isms like fascism and Marxism. These become these political ideologies. Uh, both people like Hitler uh, and Karl Marx, if you read their, their writings, they were thoroughly anti-Christian. They wanted to reject uh, the Christian limits upon government, the Christian morality that pervaded the West, and they wanted to embark in an entirely Darwinistic uh, ideal. So both Hitler and Marx argue that their systems of government were based in reason and science. Again, you won't hear modern historians talk about that. They want to talk about all the abuses of the church in history. These people literally are saying, this is the end here. This is the end of our worldview. Like, Hitler was a big fan of Friedrich Nietzsche. This is the end of our worldview. He was seeking the perfect race. Where is this perfect evolved race coming from? Well, he's assuming Darwin. Right? Karl Marx says that this is the only scientific way to do politics. I actually just saw, saw um, somebody was burning a flag somewhere in the States, um, protesting something, and he, he was using the same argument, that Marxism is the only scientifically based political theology. That was Karl Marx's claim. Some people are, are still claiming it. It led to 100 million people getting killed. Right? These things have been tried. They, they don't work. So the Enlightenment eventually crumbles with a second turn to the self, when you realize that human reason has become the standard, but no humans can agree on what's reasonable, we are left only with relativism. What works for you works for, works for you, and what works for me works um, for me. And so following the uh, nature path of Aquinas' thought leads us to modern secularism. This is the dualism we tend to live with today. Faith is a higher order experience. It's personal. 
um, it's experiential, and then you have reason below that. Two different areas of life, science, rationality, math, uh, government, and then you have up on top, religion, personal beliefs, values, and church. This is where we are, and many in the church assume this reality. So what is life like in modern secularism? You can't see it because this projector is not very good, but that's a, that's a protester wearing a mask for his safety, standing on top of a car and burning downtown Minneapolis with a target cart right in front of him. This is life in the, the wasteland. So here are the key tenets that we live in today in a secularist world. God is not allowed in public parts of life. Public parts of life are to remain secular. That is, no God here. Faith is a private, therapeutic, and relative experience. Why do I have the faith that I have? Because it makes me feel better about myself. Don't tell me that uh, 80% of the Christian songs and Christian radio don't fall under that therapeutic bent. They do. Secularism is now viewed as the neutral standard. Like, it's the good. It's the sign of progress. Like, we, we look back at medieval, or not even medieval, we look back at uh, Europe a few hundred years ago, and we think how backward they were, how simple they were. Well, they knew what men were and what women were. Who's actually making progress? Who's not? And in a, a secular mindset, all of our life's goals tend to be immediate, instant uh, gratification. Secularism focuses on the immediate frame of life and ignores anything beyond that. So everything becomes about now. Now, 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 now. So living in such an age is promoted, or promotes fragmented living. We don't have a holistic view of life. I already mentioned it, but this, this, if you feel like there's a, a barrier in your life between Sunday and Monday... Sunday morning worship, and the rest of life, it's probably because you've swallowed a bunch of secularism. That you've, you've reduced your Christian faith to only a personal experience. Life in a secular age is also haunted uh, by its Christian past. That as much as secularism wants to get rid of Christianity, it, it really can't. And so it's kind of annoyed that these relics still exist and wants to tear down statues and whatnot. Life in a secular age, we realize there's no basis for truth, for good, for progress, or for freedom. And that secularism was never as neutral as it claimed to be. And so what we end up doing is we turn further within ourselves for meaning. And life it now becomes about human flourishing. Like if you read the writers and the ethicists today, like the main thing they're going to argue about is what brings human flourishing. And they never think to ask the question, well, what actually is human flourishing? And why is it desirable? Right. What makes human flourishing, quote-unquote, good? If you can't define good, why is human flourishing good and human not flourishing bad? In fact, if you adopt a Darwinist worldview, um, not flourishing is part of how we get better. And the weak die off, and the race gets better. So why, why do we assume that human flourishing is this good thing? It's because you're still haunted by Christianity and you think humans should flourish. But you don't know why. And so we live what we would call disenchanted lives. What do I mean by that? It means that meaning is, is hard to find and everything is just reduced to natural cause and effect. 
Uh, these are quotes again from Charles Taylor. He says, In an enchanted world, the meaning exists outside of us prior to contact, and it could take us over. So before secularism rose to prominence, we believed everything had meaning. And that meaning could at any point just take us over. Like, and we had to bend the knee to meaning. Today we don't believe that anymore. We believe reality bends its knee to what we says, say it means. In a secular age, we now say the power for fullness, for fullness of life is found within. And so then he goes on to say, it wasn't bad enough for, for us to stop believing in the gods. We also had to be able to uh, imagine significance without, or within the imminent frame, the immediate, and to imagine meaning that did not depend on transcendence or God. We had to find a way for things to mean something, even with God not existing. And so you have uh, movements that say that you can create your own meaning, no matter what. Why does meaning matter? Because Christianity trained us for hundreds of years that there was meaning in everything. So what we are living in today is what I would call the disintegration of secularism. I don't think secularism is going to last much longer. I'm not a prophet, but if, you, if you've noticed, like secularism is no longer even pretending to be neutral. It's no longer pretending to not be religious. It's acting very much like a religion. And um, there's no foundation left that it's building upon, so lots of people are asking first-order questions. So it doesn't feign neutrality anymore. If you're paying attention at all, there really is no foundation for human rights. You have the uh, governor of New Mexico saying she can just suspend a right with a stroke of her pen. If you believe that a God gives rights, you can't do that. Right? When you lock everyone down and take away civil rights, you are basically saying rights come from the state. And if the rights come from the state, the state can take it away from you whenever it wants. This is very different than what our founding fathers wrote about certain unalienable rights that come from God. And so there's no foundation for truth, meaning, morality, or science, or reason. Science, math, they're all just a form of whiteness and white, um, white oppression. And so we remain haunted by Christianity because we want to talk about things like truth. We want to talk about things like right and wrong. We want to talk about meaning, but we really can't. <clears throat> and so David Wells summarizes this well. When God, the external God, dies, then the self immediately moves in to fill the vacuum, but then something strange happens. The self also dies, and with it goes meaning and reality. Those, that last sentence, that's where we are right now. Secularism doesn't work. And so the main difference between many evangelicals today and secularists is which side of the dualism as they view as more important. I, I want you to, to feel the weight of that. They both embrace the foundational beliefs of secularism, and that is the secular sacred divide. Just many evangelicals say, well, only the top part, only the secular part or the sacred part matters. Where all the secularists will say, well, really only the bottom part the secular or the natural part matters. That's why you can exist in both camps at once. This is why you can literally have Christians who should, by God's truth, know better, who will say, I don't want society Christianized. What's wrong with you? Like, seriously, like you don't want Jesus over here? How? Because they think only the top part of the divide matters. Like they've assumed the secularist view. No matter how much they quote John Calvin, they assume the secularist view that there's two parts of life and Jesus only came for that top part. He didn't really care about that bottom part. And neither should you. 
Those type of people are no threat to the seculars at all because they say, we don't really care about that top part of life. We only care about the bottom part. But the Bible and Protestantism rejects that completely. That divide has no place in the Christian worldview. So I'm going to try to run through quickly here the, the biblical alternative. Before I do, any questions? Before I say something I shouldn't? Jim? Yep. Yeah, and it's like um, Doug Wilson is is uh, renowned for saying this, but he he says religious liberty is a Christian virtue. Right? Like re- religious liberty, like no civilization really practiced that until the Christian West, and really America being the, like. If you think that seculars are going to respect religious liberty, they have no reason to respect it if they get total control. Right? We do because we believe God has created us equal. We do believe that there are different spheres within a unified life. But, yeah, religious liberty and all of, the, all of these things that seculars say they're, they're protecting by not allowing religion into the state, they're actually not. But they'll take the days off. <laughs> they'll take the paid days off. All right, so biblical alternative. So Christianity really does need to break out of its, its secular cage and return to reformational thinking. All right, so we should note that Calvin and, and company is kind of the second wave of the reformers, but really that second and third wave of the reformers went right back into the dualism. So you have some of these guys at the beginning being like, hey, we shouldn't do this, and then the next generation came in and just ruined it and returned to this kind of split thinking. Uh, So what we need to think about in the world is a return to the biblical foundation of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Like, what is this world? What is the created uh, cosmos? We we should note here that if you think about non-physical, spiritual is good and physical is bad, I just want you to note that besides the triune God, even the non-physical realm, or whatever you want to call it, is created and is fallen. That's where we have demons. That part needs to be renewed uh, as well. And so the biblical split, as I said, is between sin and righteousness, not between physical and non-physical. And so we're going we're gonna to walk through this. I probably already went too long. Um, so Genesis 1. Uh, we have the story here of God creating the world. He creates the world good. He gives man the uh, creation mandate or the cultural mandate where he says, go rule everything. Go take dominion of, of everything. And what we have at the beginning of the story of Scripture is the God who creates, and he creates the heavens and the earth, and he declares that creation good. Right? The physical world is not the problem. If you take one thing from this morning, take that. The physical world is not the problem. The creation was created good. God owns everything. He made everything as he wanted. He gave man charge as the image bearer to rule over everything in his stead. And so at the beginning of creation, you don't have this divide between the secular and the sacred. God doesn't say, hey, Adam, there's part over here of this world where I don't belong, where I have nothing to say. 
Now he says, Adam, you're going to represent me on this earth. Now go take charge of all of it. Not parts of it, but all of it. We do have, at the beginning, some good and evil there. Right? God puts a test before Adam. He says, don't eat of that tree. And you know how it goes with the, with the serpent. The fall then is introduced. So you'll know that at the beginning, we have an all-comprehensive beginning. Then at the fall, Adam and Eve uh, give in to the serpent, eat the fruit. God curses the serpent. He curses the man. He curses the woman. And he curses the ground. Right? He curses everything. A comprehensive curse. And this is how Paul talks about it in Romans 8. He says this, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Like, don't underestimate how revolutionary that type of thinking is, especially in the, uh, the Greco-Roman world where the physical world was viewed as something to be escaped, to be set free from. So Paul is saying here that creation has been universally cursed, that creation, though, is not the problem, and creation itself longs to be freed. What is it longing to be freed from? Not from being creation, not from being physical, but from sin. Creation itself wants to be freed. So there's, there's a version of Christianity out there that doesn't always come out and say it, but implies that salvation is you being freed from your physical body. Right? That, that what actually is you're being saved is you're going to be set free from the physical world. Paul says the opposite here. Salvation is the world, the physical world, is going to be set free, not from being physical, but from sin. Right? What is the problem? It's not physicality. It's sin. It's, it's evil. And, this, and then we get to redemption. So you have a comprehensive fall. Um, you have the comprehensive creation. Everything is made. Everything is impacted by the fall. And then we have this redemption here. Uh, Matthew 28. So Jesus, the, res- the resurrected Lord, says this. And Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then he sends them out into the world. But, but note he doesn't say, All authority in the sacred realm of life has been given to me. Therefore, go to parts of life. All authority in heaven and on earth. Not just the unseen world, but the seen world. Colossians 1. And through Christ to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You CBCers have heard this from me a lot, so I'll not dwell on it too long. But all things, and just so Paul wants you, just so you don't misunderstand them, on earth or in heaven, and earlier in the passage, seen and unseen, by the peace, or as he's making peace by the blood of his cross. Why did Jesus die? To forgive sinners, yes, but to bring everything in unity and reconciled to himself in his created order. Ephesians 1, same thing. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. 
I just I don't see any room at all in Christ's work for saying that Jesus only died for spiritual things. I think you really have to misread your New Testament uh, to get there. So, Christ's work. Christ died to address the chief problem, humanity's sin. Christ is the creator, Colossians 1, and sustainer and savior of all things by the blood of his cross. Christ presently has all authority in heaven and on earth, not some. Christ's work is remaking and uniting all things by the blood of his cross, a comprehensive redemption. So this biblical alternative then ends with restoration, Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away, and the sea was no more. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making some things new. I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. A comprehensive restoration. Christ died for all things and will dwell with mankind in a physical earth again. A comprehensive return to a comprehensive beginning. So, my conclusion to you here this morning. There is no room in the Christian faith for dualism, especially the secular sacred divide. What is needed in our present moment is not withdrawal from the world, but a comprehensive world in life view that is what initially transformed the West. And that means seeing the universe united by its creator and savior, Jesus Christ. And while we can rightly say there are distinctions within creation, Christ remains the head of all things. So there really is, on some level, a separation between the church and the state. But, as uh, one other Baptist pastor says, that doesn't mean there's a separation between God and state. There's a separation between church and state, yes and amen. There is no separation between God and state. So Francis Schaeffer said this, True spirituality covers all of reality. The lordship of Christ covers all of life and all of life equally. In this sense, there is nothing concerning reality that is not spiritual. That is from his book called True Spirituality. I would encourage you, if you want to dive in deeper, as to seeing how all of life is spiritual, not in the non-physical sense, but of the spirit. Read that book. It's, it's a wonderful uh, guide to that.